Welcome to the Government Services Chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians podcast. GSASEP represents emergency physicians who work in the federal government, including active duty military, National Guard, and military reserves, as well as the Veterans Administration, Indian Health Service, and other federal agencies. Our mission is advancing emergency care for America's heroes. In this podcast, we bring you lectures and conversations with leaders in federal emergency medicine to help you better care for your patients and lead your departments. The views expressed on this podcast are personal views and do not represent the views of the Department of Defense, any branch of the military, or the federal government, and they do not constitute endorsement of any product by any of these entities. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this session uh, in the leadership track on getting what you need. I'm Colonel John Wakeman, Chair of the Department of Military and Emergency Medicine at the Uniformed Services University. Uh, I've been in uniform almost 31 years now, having been sworn in five weeks before Iraq invaded Kuwait back in 1990. Uh, prior to that, I was a EMT in a semi-rural Colorado area and then uh, a inner city urban paramedic for the city of St. Louis. Uh, pretty much my entire career has been in academic emergency medicine other than in a couple of wing staff jobs, uh, one for the 7-11th Human Performance Wing, which is part of the Air Force Research Laboratory at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, and the 24th Special Operations Wing at Hurlburt Field, Florida. So here's the standard disclaimer slide. My views are my own and I have no conflicts of interest. My educational goals for this session are to talk about the differences between what you want and what's required for you to have. I'd like to suggest kind of a generalized approach to two different ways of achieving that and then talk about three examples from my career and provide some summary advice at the end. So desirables and requirements. Um, basically, something that you desire, you may be able to achieve, but if you're running into some pushback or some roadblocks, you may want to either tie it to an existing requirement or make a new requirement. And really, the beginning of the definition of requirements is really the key phrase, established needs. It has to be a need to some higher authority that has the power to grant it or uh, otherwise uh, make a decision. And it has to be established by that higher authority in writing so that you have a document from which you can work. So what are the general approaches? Well, you can kind of look at this as either bringing the decision makers to the requirement and showing them that they need to meet this requirement or bringing the requirement to the decision makers. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, this is kind of like when I teach uh, at USU for patients or casualties. You can bring the resources to the patient uh, by like mo moving like a roll two light maneuver surgical unit up to where the patient is or you can bring the patient to the resources, is evacuate them from like a roll one to a roll two. So 
likewise, you can persuade the decision makers to meet an existing requirement. You've got to do your research. You've got to uh, look for any applicable guidance. Uh, you've got to conduct uh, and document at your thought processes, your analysis, uh, what are the benefits and risks to the organization, not just to you. Uh, write a bullet background paper. That helps you frame it, but it also makes a one-pager that you can provide to all stakeholders. And then develop course of action briefing. Now, that may or not be before you do an initial briefing based on uh, the background that you developed. Uh, it could be developing a complete course of action briefing prior to uh, presenting anything to a decision maker. So you can either just do an information briefing or a course of action briefing or kind of both combined depending on how the decision maker wants to receive that. You can also adjust an existing requirement or create a whole new requirement. Um, you know, make sure that you're addressing any reasons for objections. Identify your stakeholders, get them on board, find out who is for, who's against, what the people who are against, what their reasons are, who's for, then maybe they've got some additional reasons uh, to make this a requirement, whatever it is that you need that you may not have thought about. Uh, find out who's actually got the responsibility for making the change and then make it easy for them to change. Uh, just present your arguments, have all the work done in advance, and then present it to them and hopefully they can make a decision on the spot. So here's some examples. Um, so, you know, some of you more junior uh, medical officers and others may not realize that 20 years ago, emergency departments in many MTFs were prohibited from doing moderate or deep sedation. Um, that was a problem for us. Uh, you know, back when I came in, there weren't as many uh, board certified emergency physicians. There were only 50 something training programs in the country. Uh, a lot of the military didn't really know what to do with us versus somebody who was a, had just a year of postgraduate training and was just thrust into the emergency department. And so there was a medical group instruction, which is what MDGI stands for, for those of you who aren't in the Air Force. And all emergency physicians that were residency trained were privileged for procedural sedation, but there was no depth specified. And this MDGI prohibited moderate or deep sedation outside of the operating room, aside from performed by anesthesiologists or CRNAs. So the problems for that, you know, were clearly, that's a problem for emergency medicine. Uh, it was also a problem for a lot of our consultants, and mostly it was a time delay. You know, it was actually easier if they came down, because then you could have one person performing the procedure and one person uh, watching the sedation, but sometimes, you know, in the middle of the day when operating rooms were running, you know, delays could be four, five, six hours. And in the nighttime, there's only one person on for the whole hospital. And kind of back then, uh, it was actually Wright Patterson, at least where I was at at that time, was a pretty busy place. So, you know, there was a disconnect that even on call RNA students could perform moderate or deep sedation outside the operating room, but board-certified emergency physicians couldn't. 
Um, you know, this is like a first year internal medicine resident saying, I don't think it's cardiac, so I don't think they need to be admitted. Or a first year surgery resident saying something like, you know, it's not an acute abdomen when, you know, many of us have seen way more acute abdomens than they have. So this was a disconnect. It was kind of a pride thing, but it was also important for patient care. So we defined the problem. We documented every delay of care for a period of time. Um, tried to make an effort to document the qualitative effects on patients, but that was a little harder to do unless there was a patient complaint. But we could definitely get quantitative data on throughput metrics. And, you know, which of these do you think, you know, was, you know, got the leadership's attention more? You know, it was the data that they had to feed up to higher headquarters at that time. You know, now it's they got to feed up to DHA. So we looked at the standard of care. Uh, we looked at uh, ACGME documents for residency programs. Uh, we looked at the ASAP clinical policy at the time. We pulled key clinical articles. And we looked at other hospitals in the area because really it's the standard of care in the region that is the important parameter. Uh, even if it was really quantitative metrics that got people kind of moving on this, the outcome was gonna be the same no matter how we made the argument. And a dual argument's often better than a single argument. So we wrote that background paper framing the issues uh, circulated around to the stakeholders, convened a working group. Um, you know, it's interesting that even now, you know, 2021, there is no written requirement to practice at or above the standard of care in the community in any Air Force instruction that I or uh, the JAG here could find. Uh, there is a requirement to conduct a standard of care determination when the standard of care has come into question. And Ergo, that means that you really have to practice to the standard of care. And that just makes total sense. It just was interesting that there was no actual written document uh, mandating that. So we went and looked at the clinical policies. Uh, the key phrases in, in this one, this is back from 2005, is that, uh, you know, emergency physicians are trained. It's a core competency of the specialty. And emergency physicians routinely provide this service throughout the country. Uh, not to mention the region that we were in. So we convened this working group. Um, you know, the anesthesiology representative pretty much argued that only one specialty was qualified, which was essentially being exclusionary. The emergency medicine representative argued with evidence that emergency physicians were qualified and made it inclusive and made it a larger part of the team that was delivering patient care in the acute care and emergency setting. It turns out that through some research, we also found that anesthesiology was not credentialed to provide procedural sedation outside the operating room. So that kind of also bolstered our argument a little bit. So we talked to the Chief of Clinical Services. Uh, I know that's called the DCCS and uh, other services, it's the SGH and the Air Force. Um, basically, they sided with us on a, on a lot of reasons and rewrote the medical group instruction. Uh, the problem with that was it wasn't staffed through us, so we didn't get to see it. And when it came out, we had, there was a surprise clause that said, 
that emergency physicians could do it, could do sedation, but they couldn't use a non-reversible agent. And so that pretty much excluded three of our biggies, tomidate, ketamine, and propofol. Now, we could still use them for induction, for intubation, but we couldn't use them for uh, procedural sedation, at least at the moderate or deep level. So I you know, cried foul, went back to the chief of clinical services, and also went to the uh, med group commander, uh, which essentially is the MTF commander, and you know, said, this needs to be redone. Um, I knew that there was a new chief of clinical services coming in fairly soon, so we kind of slow rolled this and just kind of tried to grease the skids and make sure that uh, uh, we had it all teed up for that person. And really, once they got there, we made a quick um, pitch and it got appropriately staffed, and then we got the med group instruction adopted. There was a lot of pushback from the chief of nursing services saying that emergency nurses including some that were certified, were not qualified to do moderate or deep sedation with the provider, and we eventually got that fixed too. We just had to prove that it was safe to do in the emergency department, and we continued the one person does procedure, one person does the uh, sedation uh, policy. So, once we got it adopted, we actually redid our metrics to show improvement and that what we were saying is going to improve throughput uh, actually did the trick and it did. And so um, people started listening to us on other causes that we had to fix as well. So the other thing I want to talk about is uh, training that was disapproved. So back um, you know, at the beginning of the global war on terrorism, Air Force flight surgeons who had only had a PG-1 year were having to fly critical patients from place to place on rotary wing platforms, uh, particularly in Afghanistan, but somewhat in Iraq too. Um, and, you know, with only one PGY one year, they didn't have a lot of ICU experience in their internships, and they really had no additional critical care training. Uh, a lot of them felt very uncomfortable doing this. Now, you know, our pararescue men that were often with them uh, were pretty high speed, but they don't do, you know, critical care transport like a CCAP team does. So, you know, you know, there were, really was no doctrine that kind of foresaw this occurring when 9-11 uh, happened. And, you know, the first critical care transport team course, the CCAT course, was in 1998, so predates 2001. But these other teams that were more designed for rotary wing platforms, because a CCAT team is three people and depending on the, the package, five to 800 pounds of gear, and you're not putting on that on a Blackhawk and then trying to fly over, you know, 14,000 foot ridges. So they came up with the idea of the critical care transport team, a ticket, and eventually settled on the tactical critical care evacuation team, the TACIT. Um, but those were still in the pipeline. So there really wasn't anything for these flight surgeons at the time. So, you know, this was the uh, applicable reg here. Uh, and so, you know, the courses that were required, and, and well, again, I should say recommended at the time, were 
the Aeromedical Evacuation Course, C4, which include, included ATLS, Advanced Trauma Life Support, and the uh, Emergency Medical Technician Basic Course. And that was really it for medicine for these flight surgeons. So we really couldn't convince uh, anybody that they needed more postgraduate training or going to the CCAT course. But when we realized that this was really mostly an AFSOC issue for these flight surgeons flying with the PJs, we narrowed the focus to AFSOC rather than trying to get the entire Air Force to change. And we got warfighting line commanders on board to really pretty much demand this capability. So a new AFSOC instruction was written. At that time, it was 48101. Uh, newer versions are 48101010 if you're interested in looking at what uh, is current. But basically, they had this statement right up front that, oops, sorry, need to go back one. Wrong click here. So the key statement here really is operational AFSOC medical personnel are required to provide only the very best aeromedical care and critical care. And now who could argue with that kind of a statement? You know, no, they're going to not provide the best care they possibly can. Well, how are you going to achieve that? So that same table had all this stuff written into it. Um, and most importantly for this mission, the initial critical care aeromedical transport course, um, which uh, is um, not exactly the right term, but it's still the CCAT initial training. And so these flight surgeons that had to do this on rotary platforms at least got that two weeks of training. And there's some hands-on with that. Uh, not a lot with actual patients, but still it was better than they were getting before. The other thing that you have to do is dig into regulations and get those little nuggets that are just really important. Um, so uh, when I was with special operations, we had a uh, Purple Heart that was denied a uh, pararescueman. He already had one. He sustained a combat injury in a uh, undisclosed location, basically a grenade explosion immediately in front of him. Uh, an 18 Delta on the scene, Army Special Forces Medical Sergeant, uh, documented a post-concussion syndrome, but as you'll see, uh, an 18 Delta is not a medical officer, and it takes a medical officer's documentation to document mild TBI. Um, but this was prior to my arrival at the 2-4-SAO, uh, this was submitted once uh, and sent back that there was insufficient documentation of the TBI, but not really a good explanation as why. And it was submitted again with more documentation on the TBI, but again, rejected. So that's when I ended up picking it up. So if you go to the instruction, uh, and you know the Air Force instruction comes right from the Department of Defense instruction, so this would apply to other uh, services as well. If you, you know, we had to first ensure that the, the person was eligible uh, to receive the award. So this says that any member of the armed forces of the United States uh, who received wounds while serving with friendly forces engaged in an armed conflict against an opposing armed force in which the U.S. party is not a belligerent. Uh, that was absolutely applicable. Uh, but then there's this little C notes four, five, and six about the conditions uh, for which um, 
you know, being wounded means, okay? And so TBI is one of those. So I looked all that up, okay? And um, if you look at TBI, it says that the medical documentation must contain evidence of residual cognitive deficits. It doesn't say for how long. Um, and functional impairment requiring medical treatment or support by a medical officer. Well, there was no medical officer in this data mass location. And so the 18 deltas documentation essentially didn't count. Um, there are some caveats that a medical officer documents that a medical officer would have made the same conclusion had a medical officer actually been there, but that wasn't flying. Okay, so we then, you know, looked at other things that were in here, um, you know, so so that was this whole, you know, note six talks about that, um, that medical officers don't have to be there. But then we went looking for other things and having known the PJ's medical record, I knew that he had had some wounds one of which included a retained foreign body that had to be removed. But that wasn't in his record either. Uh, the retained foreign body was, but not the fact that it was removed. So we basically had to track down a physician assistant, a Navy uh, special warfare physician assistant, who had not written that procedure note. That person was deployed. We had to find him in his deployed location. He had to recall the details add a note to the record. We had to provide sword testimony that it was actually, you know, the truth. Um, and so once we got that, I contacted the awarding authority to expect a third submission. Um, I informed that person of the additional criterion that I was going to be submitting with and not asking for a TBI determination. I also asked them that, you know, not to have not to let their staff screen out the package before it got to their eyes. I did get kind of a uh, angry email from the deputy SG saying that, hey, we screen everything, you know, on their merits. I said, well, I just wanted to make sure that I've kind of got the skids greased here and that nothing holds this up and that doesn't get denied before somebody does look at those merits. So we ended up submitting it and the declaration got approved, although the awarding authority never got back to me that they actually approved it. The only way I found out was from the PJ who, uh, uh, when they actually made the uh, decoration award. So kind of in summary, uh, you know, don't keep challenging the status quo. If it's not working for you, figure out a way to make it work for you. Um, and, you know, I heard this phrase from I, I think it was at uh, a conference, Jeff Bailey, Colonel Jeff Bailey's trauma surgeon in the Air Force, uh, said, be persistently dissatisfied with the status quo and be relentlessly disruptive in getting things fixed. So that's always stuck with me. It's actually on my whiteboard in front of my uh, desk, just to keep reminding me of it. So my summary advice to you is, you know, if you, you need something, Define the problem with the parameters that are important to the decision makers, not to you necessarily. Uh, do your homework. Look at all the doctrine, regulations, policies, other influences, anything that's in writing that you can bring to bear. And if it's not in writing, you know, get something written that makes it a requirement, an established need. 
find even the smallest nugget that shifts your request from just desired to required, like in the, the Purple Heart, the fact that there was a retained foreign body, and then get that documented, match that up to the requirement, and get the award made. Same would go for any other decoration that you're trying to get through. Uh, do your homework, thorough analysis, uh, because and particularly looking at risk, because that's what commanders understand. Everything is in risk and risk mitigation. So uh, work on that. Do your information uh, paper and your information briefing. Do your course of action analysis and present your uh, arguments for a decision briefing. You know, look for workable solutions that, you know, get your, uh, you know, figure out the solution. Don't just bring up a problem, but bring up a solution. And document success, your successes, you know, do the data even after you get what you want so that you can prove that, you know, what you did was actually successful. And don't rub it in when you win. You know, you may need another uh, request. You may need somebody on board for some other uh, problem that you're trying to fix. So, you know, it's great when you do win, but don't, you know, put it in other people's faces. So... That is all I have for you today. Uh, we've got uh, seven and a half minutes for questions, and I thank you for your attention. Out here. GSASEP is proud to be the premier continuing medical education source for military and federal emergency physicians. To purchase CME for the episode you just listened to, please click on the link in the show notes. The Government Services Chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians promotes quality emergency care and enhances the development of emergency physicians who serve our nation from training through retirement. Learn more about our chapter at www.gsacep.org.